Well, if you will turn your copy of God's Word um, to Esther. We find ourselves in Esther chapter 3 this morning. I'm not going to read the text all beforehand. I'm going to continue the practice as we probably go through this whole uh, book to read the, the text as we go along. It seems to be fitting uh, and work well uh, as we go. Um, so uh, we are in Esther 3, and I do encourage you to, to join along and read along with uh, as I do. I know words are on the screen, uh, but I think it's very helpful for you to look in your own copy of God's Word, whether digital or paper, uh, and just be able to follow along. So one of the things is there are, there are just a number of things in life that I find hard to comprehend. You know, you, you come across something and, and you really don't have much of an idea of, of what just happened or why. Perhaps on kind of a, a very simple, simplistic level, uh, the experience could be like reading something that makes no sense whatsoever. Like if I read a, a quantum physics textbook or um, computer coding or certain poetry, I would have no idea what was going on. Those, those would be little more than, than cures for insomnia for me. You know, I know what the English words mean in certain contexts, but when they're put together in the order in which they are and things like that, I have no idea what is being said. But then there's things that are a little more consequential. Some you don't, you don't understand at first, but maybe fairly quickly you begin to grasp a little bit of the import of what happened. The other evening, as a family, we were trying to get out of the house um, at, at a pace we had hoped, and our hopes were dashed. We did not quite get out of the house in those times. We were a few minutes late, and, you know, why is it that we're often running behind? Well, then as we were driving and heading towards where we're going, and we're on Dixie Highway, probably minutes before us, some type of massive incident happened to where the entire highway is closed. We had to wind back through neighborhoods to get around, and as we did, we're thanking God for, God for His providence, but also praying for what just happened, but we could have easily been in the midst of that. Then there are still more complicated things. Why is it, and we just prayed for it, why is it there a young mom facing cancer who's heading into hospice? Why have two good friends of mine died well before their time from cancer, at least their time in, in my viewpoint? Why do some kids struggle so hard with certain things? Why does God not answer prayers that seem to be very good? Why are there so many trials for God's people? You know, why are so many Christians persecuted in this world just for being Christians? And just throw out a few statistics on this. In the last year, so in 2022, the World Watch List reported that there are um, over 360 million Christians living in places where they experience a high level of persecution or discrimination. It's reported that, that around 5,900 Christians have been killed for their faith this year. Over 5,100 churches have been attacked, burned, or some kind of vandalization. And nearly 5,000 believers have been detained without trial, or arrested, or sentenced, or imprisoned. And I will be honest, I, my guess is those numbers are low. And they make you wonder, what's happening? 
Why is this going on? What's the purpose behind all of it? And in our study of Esther so far, we've, we've looked a bit at what is known as God's providence, His works of providence. Our shorter catechism defines God's works of providence as His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Now, when you hear that, that truth should bring us comfort. It should be hope-inducing. But it doesn't always succeed. It just doesn't. Sometimes what's going on simply doesn't make any sense. You can't figure it out so quickly like we did as we were driving where we were going the other night. As the Puritan pastor John Flavel wrote, sometimes providences, like Hebrew letters, must be read backward. You know, I can only imagine in our story that Mordecai felt much the same with all that happened in the text that's before us in chapter 3. As we look at this text, what we are introduced to is part of those realm of things that don't always make sense, and certainly not in the moment. We're introduced to a character, we're introduced to this guy named Haman, and then a holocaust that he plans and manipulates the king into setting into motion. That's horrific. It is truly horrific. Yet, with all of this, and thinking about what we're about to delve into, my hope this morning is that we actually see the call that a text like this places on our lives. And that is a call to trust in the Lord with all our heart. To trust Him in the midst of any and all circumstances, because there is hope. We do have a solid reason for the hope that we have. So before we get into this, let's ask the Lord to open our eyes and our hearts and to give strength as we approach His Word. Father, we do thank You. Thank You for this Word. We also we look at this world and we are puzzled so often, even as we look at our lives and some of the difficult things or confusing things that have happened. We are puzzled, and so we ask that you would use this word today to help us. Teach us to trust. Teach us to hope. Lord, fill me with your spirit this morning that I would preach the truth and clarity and wisdom and in the power of your spirit and open our eyes, unite our hearts to fear your name, to trust you. Lord, work this. We pray for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. So look at verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, as we get into this part of the chapter, we have to be reminded of what happened in the last section of chapter 2. Because there, Mordecai had discovered a plot against the king. Two of his servants were uh, seeking to kill the king, and he reported it to Queen Esther, who then let the king know, giving Mordecai all the credit for the news that she gave. The king's life was spared. Those who plotted against him were hanged. And all this was recorded, it says in 2.23, in the book of the Chronicles, in the presence of the king. So then when we come to these words, after these things, Ahasuerus promoted, you are expecting Mordecai. You're expecting that, but it's not. 
And that's highly, highly unusual in this situation. Kings were known to, to, to lavish someone who would save their life with great honor and respect and privilege and position in the kingdom. Yet instead, the promotion that should have fallen to Mordecai, if everything would have fallen in line, that should have fallen to Mordecai, went to this dude named Haman, who is called an Agagite. Haman the Agagite. Now, remember, when in, in Hebrew poetry, or in Hebrew narrative, really in Hebrew writing a lot of times, but particularly in narrative, when a character is introduced, how they are introduced has a very strong bearing on their role in the story. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 5, Mordecai was introduced this way. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Haman is identified as an Agagite. And that sounds like a fun word to say a lot of times. But what in the world is an Agagite? Okay? Well, it, it tells us that he was from the people of Amalek. Okay, the people of Amalek. Some of you might go, oh, I, I might have heard Amalek before. So Amalek was a Bedouin-like tribe that was in that whole region of Canaan and the area. And so when Israel was wandering in the desert under Moses, and they, they had first come out, they, they are the newly constituted kingdom, the, the Jewish people, they're, they're Israel, the covenant nation of God. Amalek had the wonderful distinction of being the first tribe to attack God's people. They gave them no passage. They picked off stragglers along the way. Exodus 17, starting in verse 8 and then verses 13 to 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And if you remember that story, that's where Aaron and Hur had to hold up Moses' arms so that uh, anytime his arms fell, Joshua started losing. Anytime his arms were up, Joshua was, was winning. And so they propped it up and all that kind of stuff. And so you can hear in this pretty much a promise that there is going to be constant war with Amalek. Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19, God commanded Israel to war against them. He said, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you. On the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So, and in many ways, the, the Lord is not just saying, you're going to indiscriminately wipe out a people. You're, you're dealing with enemies of God, those who are opposed to God and His ways. It's more destroying a way of life than it is necessarily a people, but that's the, the, the purpose of this. Now, from here, though, we come to the big connection point to our story. 1 Samuel 15, we finally meet a guy named Agag, okay? Agag was the king of the Amalekites at the same time that Saul, who was from Kish and a Benjamite, Remember, Mordecai was king of Israel. And he was commanded, this is what we read in the first 
three verses of 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now Saul did go out, and he took a huge force with him. But he spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle. And when Samuel came, he's like, what's that bleeding I hear in the distance? And he's like, uh, you haven't done it all here. And he did it in disobedience to God. This was sin on the part of Saul. He failed. He deliberately chose his own way. And so think about it. That sin informs what we're going to come across now as we look at Esther, starting in verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So Haman's promoted, and there's a command, you got to bow down to him. But Mordecai refused. And so some dudes are around there asking, hey, why? Mordecai, why are you not doing what you're supposed to do? And day after day, they go to him and they're asking why, and he's not listening to them, and he's not going to do it. And all that we are told is because he was a Jew. So truly, there's nothing explicit in this text that tells us why Mordecai did not bow down. And of course, there are a lot of opinions. Maybe Mordecai was bitter. Maybe he thought, that's supposed to be me. I'm not bowing down to that scuzzbag. There's no way. That's my position. Maybe he didn't bow before any human being because he thought that that gesture was something that was only to be given to God, though I highly doubt that one because I'm pretty sure he would bow before King Ahasuerus. Yet I do think that this text obviously gives us a strong clue. That's why I just went through and, and brought out the, the history of Haman the Agagite. So when you look at it that way, for Mordecai, a Jew in the line of Saul, descended from Saul, showing respect to a descendant of King Agag was just way too much. That was over his line. Showing respect to that particular enemy of God was a threshold that he could not cross. But was that right? Seriously, think about that. Was that right? Honestly, I don't think this seems to be all that black and white here. I think you could argue fairly well either side of, yes, he should have bowed, or no, he should not have bowed. So in some ways, I think this appears that Mordecai was taking a pretty hard stance on what we might call a more secondary issue. When I, when I actually read through this the first time as I was studying, I wrote next to it that he didn't bow. I wrote, seems kind of rude. Because surely he's bowed to others. Yes, Haman was an Agagite. Yes, the, the, he's an enemy. But are we not supposed to love our enemies? It makes you wonder if Mordecai was doing what Jesus complained about regarding the Pharisees. Matthew 23 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I thought Ian Duguid, a great commentator, had a very insightful comment on this. He said, what a vivid picture of many of our churches. We are expert gnat strainers. Sieving out with precision the wrong motive or the wrong movies, the inappropriate clothes and hairstyles, the sinful styles of music, any minor deviancies from traditional church practice, wherever and whenever we encounter them. Yet at the same time, we may easily tolerate in ourselves and those around us camel-sized sins, such as gossip about others or pride in our own accomplishments or prayerlessness. We won't bow the knee to Haman. Somewhat may, but we will easily fall for many greater sins. And listen, Duguid is not saying we're to be okay with certain sins, but maybe too often we focus on ones that maybe aren't as big, and we do that to the neglect of others. And so that's just a, that's a question to ask with this. But there's still another aspect, and that is, this whole aspect, this whole issue that I think prompt, prompted Mordecai not to bow, it's the result of past sin. It really is. If, if Saul had obeyed fully, there wouldn't have been a Haman. The line of the Amaleks would have been gone. And so, one principle here is our past sins often bring about complications in our own lives. They can also complicate the lives of our family and friends. I think those ideas are are necessary for us to consider when we're reading through this text because we are all sinners. This is all part of life. Yet I don't want us to lose sight still of the, the bigger picture that we see in Esther and that we see in our own lives because we still often are left wondering as Mordecai would have at this point in time, why is this happening? Why is Haman, why is he promoted? How is God going to work in this? Especially when we see what this action by Mordecai prompts. It's a catalyst for something that had the potential to not only change Mordecai's life, but actually to destroy it and the lives of every single one of his kinsmen. Look at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman was not content at you know, in some sense, maybe you could say in the law of the land with just simple justice. Like, Mordecai, according to the, the rule of the land, should have bowed. It's like, nope, I'm going to kill them all. That's maniacal, okay? That's, that's way out there. He wasn't content to merely go after Mordecai. His hatred and pride led him to pursue truly a holocaust. Look at verse 7. In the first month, 
which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they, they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. At the beginning of this text, they start casting lots or casting pur, okay? Um, and there's, there's two ways to look at how this text is worded. Either they did this every day for almost a year to try and figure things out, or they met on this first day and they cast it and they kept rolling the, the, the dice, so to speak. They're basically like dice to, to determine what month, what day, what exact time they are to attack and destroy the Jewish people. That's what I believe actually happened uh, because one of the things in particular is there's a painful irony in what took place of when they began to cast the lots. It was during Passover. When they decided this, it was probably around the day that the lamb was chosen for slaughter. So their slaughter has been determined on the day that the lamb is chosen for slaughter for them to celebrate God's redemption of the people of God out of slavery in Egypt. So when the date for the Holocaust was determined, Haman then went to the king and manipulated him, which seems to be fairly easy at this point in time. We're only three chapters in, and this king is manipulated by everyone left and right. Um, he might be a halfway decent military leader, but he's not very good at anything else, it seems like. He give, uh, Haman gives no real reason for why to do this. Ahasuerus asks no actual questions about it. Um, all that Haman says is, these are people who do not keep the king's laws, so it's not in your interest to tolerate them. Like, you really should just get rid of them. And so Haman then promises 10,000 talents of silver. Now, most of us have no idea how much that is. That's almost the entire tax revenue for a year in Persia. How Haman is going to come up with this is probably, he doesn't have it, but most likely through the plunder of all the Jews. That's how he plans to come up with this amount. And then Haman, the king says, well, it's all, it's all yours to do with you as you wish, which basically, I think in a lot of ways says, you can do with it as you wish, but I better get that money, <laughs> kind of thing. And then we come to verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples. To every province in, their, in, his, in its own script, and every people in its own language, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. 
Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So once again, we see the, the king's couriers are enlisted. You know, earlier they went out and told everybody of the thing that the king really didn't want anybody to know, that he couldn't control the queen. And they're going throughout the entire nation. Now they're going out with this, with this uh, edict from the king with horrific language in everybody's language, so that they can hear it. It comes with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. I think you could have just used one of those, but you're using all three to make sure it gets across and to instill utter fear in every single Jew. It's genocide is what's being planned. You know, just think of the effect that this would have had. So the king's courier system was pretty quick. So even if it took, say, a month to get it to all the provinces, there are still 10 months where the Jewish people are going, in 10 months, we're all dead. We're dead. We're, we're done. Like, that's not good for your mental health. Okay? They're, they know it. They know that it's coming. That emotional torture would be almost unbearably and certainly all of them would have been wondering, why? Why, why, why is this happening? What, 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 what is going on? What, what, what prompted this turn of fate? What, what did we do? You know, none of them probably would have thought, just because one dude wouldn't bow down. You know, they're probably thinking, Persia... This is, you know, so the, the ones who are still in Persia, they probably stayed behind because Persia was a pretty tolerant nation. You know, their, their king decreed earlier on, Cyrus decreed, go back, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, I'll even pay for it. Some of them were like, you know what, it's comfortable, this is home now. We'll stay, we're, we're doing fine, they're tolerant, they tolerate who we are, and now here comes this edict, you're all dead. What in the world is going on? You know, and obviously, and in one sense, this is the, the whole idea of this genocide. It's appalling, it's grisly, it's racism, it's, it's, it's sin, it's, it's hatred of God and the people of God. And again, it's hard to understand why it happens the way it does. You know, we, we know, we know that there are enemies of God and enemies of God's people, and there always will be until the day that the Lord returns and sets everything right. But the extent that it happens sometimes, you know, I gave those statistics early on, the extent that it happens, the extent that it's about to happen here, the extent that it happened for the, the Jewish people in World War II, or so many other people where we see you know, genocide type of things happening. It wasn't just that Holocaust. It happened in Soviet Russia. 
happened with the Khmer Rouge. It happened so many places. The extent of it, the difficult of those bitter times, and in particular the bitter times that the people of God experience, it's hard to grapple with. It's hard to understand, why does this happen? God, where is your hand? Where is your presence to bless? Where's your goodness? One pastor wrote, he said, God's providence does not cushion his people from trials, nor from the malice of evil men. Esther 3 does not resolve the mysteries involved in the question of how God's sovereignty and the reality of evil relate. But neither will it let us ignore the fact that even the evil of Haman is bounded and superintended by God's most holy, wise, and powerful upholding and governance. We may not see that hand, but it's there. And again, that is all well and good to know. That is foundational. We need to know that. We need to believe that. But what can we learn from it? What does God intend to teach us as his people when we read something like Esther 3? Or when we look at the world and we see so many of these things that we don't understand, or we just look at our own household and we see many things we don't understand. The struggles, the pain, the trials, the difficulties. What does God intend us to grasp from this? What are we to do in response? One thing, and and probably the most important, is that we do need to learn to trust to trust in God and rest in his work. Sinclair Ferguson wrote this. He said, God's ways and thoughts are not ours. As William Cooper knew well, God plants his footsteps in the sea. We can no more read in detail God's secret purposes for our individual lives than we can see footsteps in water or understand Hebrew if we try to read it from left to right. To imagine we can is to suffer from a form of spiritual dyslexia. Folks, it's okay to say, I don't understand the ways of God. That's humility. (laughs) It is a sign of youth and pride to think you've got it all figured out. So we learn to trust. We all know, or probably most of us know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, don't we? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on what? On your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Think about that in regard to our sin. We talked about earlier that some of the stuff with Mordecai is a result of past sin, isn't it? For that verse to say, he will make straight our paths, 
I think it's a pretty strong deduction that quite often we're walking crookedly. That we've chosen sin. And he can make straight the crooked paths that we so often walk. You know, folks, our sin certainly informs us, informs who we are and the situations we are in, but it doesn't define a child of God. And it doesn't determine that the outcome is going to be bad. Because our God is able to work through sinners. That's the entire story that's here. There's only one in here that he worked through, which is him, it's Jesus. Everyone else is a flawed hero. Very flawed. David, Moses, Abraham, Peter, Paul. I could keep going, but I'd probably lose count. They're all flawed, just like you and me. You know, in Esther, God will work despite that past sin of Saul and maybe a stance too strong for Mordecai. Maybe not. Maybe it's right for him to say, I'm not going to bow down before an enemy of God. But he's going to use it. God will use all of it to preserve his covenant people. God will work in us. God will work in his children despite our sin. Now, that's not a call to say, okay, whatever, I can do whatever. We still long to strive after holiness. We want to walk as close to that straight path as possible, but we know that the Lord will work through us and in us for His glory and our good. We know that all things work together for the good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. He will work to bring you to Himself. How do we know this? How do you, know, how do you not just sit there and go, Chad, sounds great, but I don't believe you. Well, one, you can read the rest of Esther if you want to, and you'll see it work out. We'll get there. The other is you can just look at our Lord. Look at Jesus. God worked through evil intentions of evil men. Completely worked through it. Those, they did it, but God worked it for His purposes through betrayal, through beatings, through crucifixion, through death, and He brought new life by all of it. He brought new life through the sin of so many people on Christ. Christ was forsaken, so we would not be. And you know what? The disciples were utterly clueless at first, weren't they? scattered. They ran. They denied him. But when they looked back and they could read it backwards, they could see how God was at work. It was clear. The picture was beautiful. Have you ever looked at, I don't know the right terms, but like a weaving like with a loom and the top is just beautiful. Have you ever gone on the backside of one of those? It's a mess. It looks like if, if that's all you saw, you'd be like, this person should quit this. They have no idea what they're doing. And then it's flipped over, and you're like, oh, that is amazing. 
That is so much our lives sometimes. We can look out and we can think, God, you have no idea what you're doing. And yet when we read it later, like, oh, man, you're really good at this. It's the beauty of our God. We may never know fully in this life why God allows certain pains and suffering and why he chose to bring about his redemptive purposes in a certain way, but we can be assured that he is working his purposes. The cross continues to remind us of that. The cross is a, is a blaring loudspeaker that says he'll work through it. Really, it's an empty tomb that plugs that speaker in so we can hear it. It also reminds us that he's not aloof to our pain and our suffering and our struggles and our trials. God is working. And so, folks, our hope can stand firm, can stand strong, because the ground of the trust in which our hope is placed will never fail. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've given us as your people. Thank you that in the midst of a lot of difficulty, so many hard things, you care for us. And you work it out. And Lord, teach us to trust. Teach us again and again how it is true that the Christian's hope can never fail. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.